As I was walking into the hall just now, kind of looking around, I just somehow had the sense of as if sort of like walking not quite through a battlefield, but something a bit like that, with sort of bodies strewn everywhere. <laughs> it's kind of like the... Uh, the uh, I don't know, the the way a, a day of practice plays out, it seems, sometimes. And we might have some sense of that for ourselves in different ways, what that's like. And arriving here at the front, as I, as I do, I like to take a moment when giving teachings to just express my appreciation and gratitude to the Buddha and uh, it's a remarkable human being who made, to my mind, an incredible offering to humanity. It doesn't seem necessarily that he had the easiest of lives, but he, he, he left a remarkable impression in the world that continues to offer something precious and and beautiful and this uh, urge we have to make an offering to in a way contribute something to to give to life to respond to life this is something that is very much at the heart of what we're engaged in here very much at the heart of our practice and what is possible for us as human beings in learning and discovering for ourselves what it means to embody the awakened heart, to live in a way that reflects the deepest truth of life, that honours and expresses what we might discover at the very heart of things. And we come to practice, I think, for many different reasons. A sense of possibility not yet fulfilled, potential that could be manifest, a sense of struggle and difficulty we seek to understand and to transform, this wish to free our heart and our mind from suffering, something noble, something wholesome and beautiful. And as we, as we enter deeply into our lives, as we enter deeply into this practice and this retreat, as we have been doing, what we start to see, what we start to notice is that perhaps that care and that concern that we have for our own lives is not and cannot be limited to just ourselves or what is immediately around us. As we start to see that our life is something that touches and is touched by all things, we start to perhaps recognize that when we don't take up, when we don't hold on to any particular story or any particular definition, any particular version of who we believe ourselves to be, but we allow room for them all. When we allow our hearts to be sensitive, to be touched, to resonate with experience, the, the sense of a boundary, the sense of a, a somehow an absolute or fundamental and real separateness that we sometimes perceive or experience starts to seem less real, starts to seem less solid. And when we, when we notice what it's like in the silence, when we're, when we're open, when we're sensitive and we're touched by things, part of the experience of being touched and why it means so much for us, why it speaks to us so sweetly and poignantly when we're touched by our experience in just simple ways. Just a moment where the breath opens up within our attention and we feel the, the flickering, vital and the, the, the sort of the, the sense of its aliveness just in the moment, or the sound of a bird that we 
we hear and that our heart just quivers with the sweetness of enjoyment. So many different ways and moments we can be touched. And the thing about being touched is that life gets in. Life gets in in so many ways when we're open, when we're not so defended. And that openness, that allowing life to get in, it speaks to us. It reveals to us, it tells us something about what's fundamentally true, that we're not separate from each other. We're not separate from what we imagine and conceive to be outside of ourselves or outside of what is here. That it's not just that we're part of something larger, although indeed we are part of something vast and mysterious, but we're actually that beyond just being a part of it, we are all of it. In a way that's hard for our mind to get, thinking about it doesn't make a lot of sense. And yet, in our heart, we can get this very deeply. We can know this unshakably. That we are not in something that is other than what we are. And when we start to feel, when we start to sense, when we start to intuit that in some way, we naturally find ourselves concerned with everything, with all of life we start to look perhaps a little differently as what is around us, at what is around us. As the Indian teacher, poet and mystic Shanti Deva said, he lived in the 6th century in India, northern India, he said, just as we see these limbs as part of a single body, can we not see all beings are simply limbs of embodied life. Can we not see that each expression of life is part of something larger than itself? That we could say each being, each thing we encounter is simply ourselves in another form. The same principle of life, the same fundamental nature expressing itself in a different way but in a way that we can't really in any absolute or meaningful way we can't really believe anymore is apart from ourselves while at some level of course there is me over here and you over there and we know this and there's reasons why that's helpful to understand because of course when we're taking some food it's good to know which mouth we should put the fork in. <laughs> Things get a little messy and confusing if we can't keep track of that kind of information. It's like yeah of course so there's a certain responsibility here for certain functions and activities here. That's absolutely so and you know many other such things. But but that doesn't mean we don't care that those beings around us also, that we aren't concerned for those beings around us also to get food, to be nourished just as we wish to be nourished, to allow our heart to be open to the world, is to allow and to invite its natural capacity for responsiveness to be expressed to hear and to feel each other as we hear and feel ourselves. We naturally want to respond, we naturally want to care. And in the uh, sort of the, the Buddhist tradition of the northern countries, the, which is known as the Mahayana tradition, one of the uh, the images that's, that's used, in fact, is uh, expressed here in this rupa, Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin is a, uh, say a bodhisattva, a, a being who's ex both aspiring to and embodying the awakening that is possible for us. 
and doing so in the service of all beings, for the welfare of all beings. And Kuan Yin, as she's known, also known as, in another expression, Avalokiteshvara, is, is the one who, and the name means the one who hears the cries of the universe, the one who's listening, the one who's resonating. And I think it's really interesting that it's particularly the one who hears the cries of the universe. Because when we look, when we see, we tend to think things are out there or over there. That's the way we create this image of a apparently three-dimensional universe with things that are separated in time and in space. But when we hear, when we hear something, what we feel is a resonance. And we can't really say that that resonance arises out there or in here. We can't really make it that separate. What we hear arises at the same time within us as wherever it originates, it seems. It doesn't have that sense of of distance, of disconnection built into the image it creates. And there's a way in which we respond accordingly when our heart is open. When we understand we're connected. And so this this capacity that we talk about in, in the in the practice and the teachings of of compassion or karuna it's the word the Buddha used, karuna. This response, it's something natural. It's like when our foot gets hurt, if we, you know, kick our bare foot into a stone or something, and we feel the pain, automatically the hand comes to rub, to soothe, to bring some ease and care. And it's just the natural response, isn't it? We don't have to think about it. It's not like the hand has to, hmm, shall I help out for that foot? You know, what's it ever done for me? Hmm, what will I get in return if I, if I rub the foot, you know? The hand doesn't do that, does it? It doesn't happen that way. We don't sort of experience, although we talk about, there's a hand. It's a very different thing than a foot, in some ways, at least. We have a different name for it. It has mostly different functions at least at some point after we stop walking on all fours. And yet the natural response for the hand is to rub the foot when it hurts. Now Shantideva, he observed of himself, he said, when acting on behalf of, of others, no amazement arises in me, just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. Something beautiful in that, that, that sense of something that's complete. That it doesn't need something to come back because it's already received in the giving and the offering and in acting on behalf of others. No amazement arises in me. Just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. And in that way too, when the hand rubs the foot, we talk about the hand and the foot. But where is the place where the hand ends and the foot begins? In our mind we think there's two things. But if we were to draw, to look, you know, if you consider your own body or you can't see my foot, it's under the blanket somewhere down there, the hand and the foot are not separate, are they? There's, there's no way we can actually keep them apart. In some ways we could think of this, it's not a hand and a foot, it's a hand foot. It is, isn't it? And sometimes when the foot is sore, the hand rubs it. Other times, of course, the hand gets to hang out in a warm pocket while the foot has to do all the walk, all the work, walking around. And they don't sort of try and measure and work out. We don't try to say, my, who's got the better deal here? When the capacity of one is needed, it's expressed. When the capacity of the other is needed, it's expressed. And that kind of experience it sort of shows or reveals something about life. When there's that openness, when there is that connection, there's a natural expression of care that emerges from us that we know. This isn't something I'm expecting to be news to you that you've never heard of. Oh my gosh, you know, I don't expect you to be surprised to hear. 
what's being spoken here. And yet there's something about us for something about it for us to reflect on that. Oh, what's that saying about what it means to be what we are? What it means to be this human being, we could say. What it means to be this aliveness expressing itself in this form. And what does it mean to align our lives with a wish and an aspiration to serve the well-being of life, to serve the welfare of all beings? Not as a nice idea or as something that we think we should do because then we'd be really spiritual, but because that's actually what the very cells of our body and our heart are here to do. And we know that when we're quietly and deeply in touch with the core of our life, with the heart of our life. We care so deeply about the welfare of others and ourselves, so deeply. And this caring is fundamental to the very nature of what it is that we are, that we come to discover more and more fully in the journey of practice in the journey of awakening. And so this quality of compassion, this quality of responsiveness, it's that quality which is opposed to the wish to cause harm or pain. It's quite the opposite of cruelty that seeks to cause suffering, but that has its, its natural expression, the wish to relieve pain the wish to relieve the suffering from others and ourselves. And I think if we look, if we, if we let ourselves feel, this, this goes right to the core of what we are. Although, of course, our life seems to be expressed often in terms of our biological drives for survival and all the ways in which that expresses itself. Not always, it seems, compassionately or with sensitivity for others, not always compassionately, or with sensitivity to ourselves. But if we look, if we feel deeply into what underlies all of that, again, it's this deep caring, it's this compassion, it's this wish for well-being and flourishing in life. And when we are open to, when we're in touch with the sensitivity of our hearts, when we're not defending it or trying to protect it from being affected, being touched by life. This remarkable organ of sensitivity is rather beautiful. And yet, it's not easy to inhabit fully. It takes courage and nobility, and these are things that we develop, we cultivate along the way in this journey. We can also distinguish then the difference between pity. When, when we see someone in a difficulty and there's pity, the quality of pity is more like they've got some kind of problem, poor them, poor them. But we kind of keep ourselves distant from it. And that's why we don't like being pitied, because we feel ourselves made separate. Even if someone's kind of trying to help out out of pity, there's something in that that we resist. Understandably, because there's something in that that's not true. Compassion comes from actually allowing ourselves to feel and to know that the suffering that we may encounter in another is not different than our own and ultimately not other than our own. So to say it's not different is to recognize it has the same character and in a way we're in the same boat. But it goes deeper than that, it goes further than that because the suffering of another is not just like our own suffering, it is our own suffering. When we understand that what we are encompasses all that is. And the very word compassion expresses that and it's the sense of you know, passion is suffering, is the, the meaning of the word. And com, or co, together, suffering with, the suffering together, the sharedness of the experience. 
the sharedness of the experience. And, as, and when we know that, and to the degree that we understand that, it brings, it reveals a profound connectedness that we can know with each other, with ourselves, and with the wholeness of life. The wholeness that has a quality related to healing in the word. As someone was speaking in one of the groups, I think it was a group, or maybe it was an interview, I can't remember. My memory is terrible for that sort of thing, so excuse me. Uh, sense of wholeness and healing. And interestingly, that word comes also from those words that come from the same root. They also come from the same root as holy. That which is whole, that is undivided, is also that in which healing is transformed, in which something of the spirit, something of the divine, something of the, the mystical and the beautiful is revealed and expressed at the same time. The revelation and the expression are the same. And although, of course, we can speak about this as the natural expression of our heart, the natural response of our heart, it's not always what happens for us. Because it's not easy for us to be open in this way. Compassion itself, that it needs to be understood, is, is not a feeling. We sometimes associate it with a kind of tenderness and resonance, feeling open and raw or touched and quivering in the heart. And this is a beautiful quality. And in fact, in the, in the Buddha's teaching, it's described as, and there's, there's a word for it, anukampa, which is, is, is a beautiful quality of the, the quivering of the heart in the presence of suffering or vulnerability and tenderness. But the movement of compassion itself, of karuna, is actually that response of the heart, the way we move, that there's a thought, there's a, a word, there's a deed that is engaged in the process of relieving, of transforming, of healing the suffering that we encounter. And it may be just as simple as the, the wish, may you be free of pain, may your suffering be healed. And it's a response that has something, it carries something. I always think of the uh, one of my favorite characters, I think both Leela and I have mentioned him, Ryokan, one of my favorite uh, sort of characters of the Buddhist uh, world. He's a delightful being and uh, also very compassionate. He was once observed. Did I tell you this story already? Gosh, my memory. <laughs> If not, I told it to someone last week, probably, <laughs> at a different retreat. Observed on a cold winter's day, reaching into his robe, picking out the lice and putting them on a rock in the sun to warm themselves. <laughs> how amazing, so kind and tender he seemed as he did it. And how amazing he was seen at the end of the day picking them up and putting them back in his robe. <laughs> And he once observed, he said, looking upon the world, he said, Oh, that my monk's robe was wide enough to gather up all the suffering beings in this floating world. And that sense of just the way the heart would like to reach out and gather in to our bosom, to hold all the suffering all the suffering and the pain, all the beings, we'd like to just, wouldn't we, wouldn't we, if we could, just bring it all to an end? And yet, that capacity to respond, to open in this way, it very much depends upon our own willingness, our ability to feel 
that which is not easy to bear. And so as we practice and as we learn and we deepen our capacity to do so, the responsiveness of our heart starts to reveal itself more and more. And the, re the effect of this can be remarkable. I'd like to read a story, a true story from a hospice in America about a woman named Hazel. And Hazel came into the hospital in a very contracted state, into the hospice, sorry. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All she did not want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so much, so many and so often that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to a point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. Feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear how her intense holding had created such intense pain. Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her, and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered, let go, and died into her life, into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense quite beyond reason that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breasts slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast, spine and legs twisted in pain. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of an Inuit, an Eskimo woman, lying on her side during childbirth, dying. Tremendous pain in her back, hips and legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose, and she was each, dying beside the others. She experienced the ten thousand sufferings simultaneously, and she said afterwards, The pain was beyond my bearing. I couldn't stand it any longer. And something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it wasn't just my pain. It was the pain. It wasn't just my life. It was all of life. It was life itself. And as the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to the others in pain at the hospice. She asked after them constantly, and the room became a place where the nurses would come because it was a room of love. Soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sat on her bed. The gra grandchildren she had never met, whose heart she had rejected before they were born. For several weeks before her death, Hazel's room became a place of healing of finished business, of universal care. And so there's something that she understood, that we're in the process of understanding, all of us together, more and more deeply. What happens when we allow ourselves to be touched by our life? To not identify with it, to not take it as somehow self-defining. 
in a way that separates and isolates us. But allow it to be simply revealing. Revealing of what we share. And in that, naturally, naturally, it's not something we do. It's not something we should do or we have to do. It's simply what we could say wants to happen in the same way that water rolls down a hill towards the pond or that a river flows down to the ocean. It's just the nature of things that they move in that way. And so to really allow our hearts in this way to be open, to be touched, So often it seems to me that that's difficult to do. It's not easy to do, to allow in the enormity of the suffering there is in this life, in this world. Sometimes even just as much as there is in ourselves seems beyond us. And yet what I've learned again and again over the years is that what enables that, what allows that to be possible is to trust that responsive capacity of the heart to find something it can offer. It's not that we necessarily have to make some grand sort of sacrifice or response or gesture with our lives. It's to do what we can. That's all we're asked to do. Mother Teresa was once speaking on this. She said, you know, we're not asked to do great things in this life, but to do small things with great love, to make an expression of our heart's response in life is incredibly powerful without judging or evaluating our success, or the degree to which we may have brought about some resolution. But just that response. And I had a, a very powerful experience of this when I was still quite young in my practice and traveling in Asia. And I had the, the good fortune and opportunity to be able to visit an orphanage run by the, uh, the order of, of Mother Teresa in Calcutta. And I was told in going there that I was going with a friend and uh, we were both men. Well, I was told that we couldn't volunteer there because the culture in India and that was respected there was that men don't work with young children. That's just, it's just not done. And there are perhaps good reasons why that's so. But we were told we could just come for a couple of hours and that's it. Um, and so we went along to this orphanage, and the first thing that happened was we, we met these uh, young children, sort of maybe two, three years old, and up to six or seven or eight. And they were just very animated and alive and just really happy to meet some, and particularly, you know, they're sort of brother, brother, uncle, uncle, um, they, the way that in that culture one refers to someone a little elder than oneself, as if one's already part of their family, and something very lovely about that. Um, and we spent some time with them, but then we also wanted to visit the babies. And um, we knew that there were a lot of orphans and uh, very young children, babies here, whose uh, parents are not able to support them, and so they get given to the orphanage. Or perhaps their, their parents die when they're, when they're still infants. And so we walked into this room, my friend and I, and it was probably about the size of this hall. And in it, well, probably larger actually, um, and in it, there was rows of cots and rows upon rows of cots. And in each cot were two babies. Between, probably most of them between probably six and 18 months of age. And as we walked in, we saw that there were two or maybe three of the, um, the sisters of the order. And they were armed with either sort of sponges and cloths and towels or with bottles of milk. And they were very busily moving amongst the, the cots, cleaning the, the babies or feeding the babies. And as we walked in, something amazing happened. Because the little babies, they started looking up at us. 
And some of them started reaching their arms up towards us. And others started pulling themselves up on the edge of the cot and reaching out towards us. And we looked at each other. And straight away, we both of us knew what the situation was. It's like these little beings, the people looking after them just about had enough time to whiz around cleaning them and feeding them. But they didn't really have much time to pick up and hold them. And these babies knew what they wanted. It was heartbreaking just to recognize it. Oh my gosh. And so what could we do? We walked into this room, started picking up the babies and just taking one baby and these little beings just like a, like a limpet, like a clam sucking on, just whoa. It was so sweet just to hold them and to feel how they just started to slowly soften into that. It's like, yes, please. And then after a little while, there's this room full of babies. It's like, having to just peel them off, put them down, pick up another one. <laughs> oh. Oh. It was, as I said, it was heartbreaking. And we just walked through the room, picking up babies, holding them for a little while, and then putting them down. For probably two or three hours we did that. And you know, we didn't get around all the babies. And in the end, we had to leave. And that was heartbreaking. And yet at the same time, the sense of having done what we could was something also palpable and sweet. And it felt like, yeah, that's what we can give right now. There was a point in the process where I, I was reflecting, thinking, you know, I could spend my whole life in this room with these little beings just doing this. And I don't really think that there's another life that would be more meaningful or fulfilling or beautiful for me to live than that. The reality is here, that's not something I'm given the opportunity to do. I can't do this here. And to be honest, if I'm deadly honest with myself, even if I was, I'm not sure I would have chosen that. But something about just listening to the heart, doing what one can. And in life there are so many opportunities where we can make a difference. And where we need to, not just for the well-being, of whoever it is we might respond to, or whatever situation we might contribute to, but actually for the well-being of our own heart, because it, it's actually part of our own healing. It's part of honouring the truth of our own heart that we allow that response to find its expression, to find its way. To know that it makes a difference always. The heart is both broken and healed, in that process because the condition of the heart is not one in which it is ultimately meant to be shielded it doesn't thrive behind the defense and the protection and something about that breaking and that responding and that healing fulfills something completes something connects something And every little gesture, every kind word or kind look, it makes a difference in this world. The world is a kinder place for every thought of kindness that we bring forth, for every expression of care that we extend. Whether or not we can solve the situation or resolve the difficulties of another, that isn't necessarily given to us, or even resolve the difficulties of ourselves but that we respond compassionately. One drop in the ocean raises the level of the ocean every time. So what's also important here is to recognize and to be compassionate with our own humanity. We can sometimes take on a kind of an agenda, some kind of idea of who we should be that's not authentic, that's not true, that's not real or realistic. 
there needs to be a balance of compassion for ourselves and other, understanding that we're connected and perhaps seeing more deeply into the profound interconnectedness of life, the inseparability of life. At the same time, we need to recognize what's appropriate, what's possible, what's actually useful. And that compassion does not mean self-sacrifice. It does not mean abandoning the well-being of ourselves in order to serve the welfare of another. Any more than it makes sense for one part of our body to hurt itself to try and take care of another, unless perhaps in some situation there is no other option. But mostly that's not the case. When we see where our limits are, and sometimes this can be hard, when we feel we'd like to give more than we're actually able to, or we perhaps believe we should, to be aware of those ideas as not necessarily coming from the place that's most important. When we come to our own limits, this is a place where we need to be compassionate for ourselves. When we see that we might like to give, but we only feel able to give a little, to be able to acknowledge and recognize that this might be because our own place of learning and development is still challenged here. And that is a cause for, and a call for compassion to ourselves. To say, okay, I remember in those times when I was traveling in Asia, feeling like I wished I could give away more than I managed to give away. I kind of sometimes thought I could give everything I have. And for these people it would be, it would make a big difference in their life. And for me, I'd be fine. But I couldn't. I couldn't give away everything. Saying, oh, okay, yes, yeah, so I'm, still, I'm still limited in that way. Without judging that, but just acknowledging that. Oh, okay, there's my own fear. There's my own limitation. Sure, that's allowed. That's okay. Recognizing that. It's like even just the places we can't in ourselves yet fully open to. We talk about forgiveness and opening to places that are difficult, to people that are difficult, and yet seeing that where we can't, we need to forgive ourselves. That where we can't open in those places, that's because we still kind of we're still growing in that way. And compassion for ourselves is to forgive ourselves for our inability to forgive another. Or for those places where we get lost in reactivity. That's true compassion, equally as forgiving another. And to understand the importance of taking care of ourselves. That this, that can serve the well-being of others, needs to be cared for. And actually that is not a contradiction. That taking And sometimes people say, is it okay to come on a retreat? Doesn't it look a bit selfish? Like here am I having this rather privileged time? when maybe I could be doing good things for others. And yeah, it is, of course, a privilege. And privilege brings with it some kind of responsibility, we could say. But it's a privilege, and yet it's an appropriate response and privilege to really give our heart the support for its growing, for its deepening. When we hold that with a vision of service, of sharing, of caring for life, of finding ways to contribute to the well-being of the world. And in that, keeping finding balance is challenging for us. I remember being really struck reading about a, um, a Zen monk who was an activist. And he said after many years of, of both spiritual practice and um, political engagement, he said, I've come to understand that in order to stay in balance, in order for this to really be healthy, in order for it to stay really clear in my heart, I need to do seven hours of spiritual practice for every one hour of activism I engage in. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. That would mean probably having to do quite a bit of practice in one's life. And yet seeing that that practice isn't in any way selfish, 
when we understand it as being in the service of our capacity to offer in this world what we can offer to it. To not make ourselves more or less important than others. To see that at times, yes, it's appropriate that we might not prioritize our own needs in order to serve or to contribute to the well-being of another. But equally at times, we might and appropriately prioritize our own needs over those of another in order to take care of ourselves. And yet, when we hold that larger vision, when we have that sense that this life is for the service of life, that this precious opportunity for awakening is an awakening in the service of all beings, then our practice starts to rest in something unshakable. Our life starts to rest on something profound and noble. And this is really the fulfillment of our heart's deepest longing to not just know itself. Our heart-mind, we could say, not just to know itself, yes, to know itself deeply and profoundly, but equally to serve itself, which is all of this that we call life. All of this that we call existence. And so I'd like to finish with another piece from Shantideva in his book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which is the guide to living as one who's devoted one's life to awakening for the welfare of all beings. He says, May I be a guard for those who are without protection, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to go across the water. May I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an island for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, may I be a bed. And for all those who need help, may I be a servant. May I be the wish-fulfilling jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures. For the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. And thus for every single thing that lives, vast in number like the boundless reaches of the sky. May I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. To know deeply the truth of our life, to awaken in the very midst of it and to serve this life are not different things. And so May we all deepen in our practice of awakening in the service of life. 
and may our lives be in the service of all beings, ourselves and each other and all that lives. So may we and all beings see the emptiness of separation and realize the profound interconnection and interconnectedness of life. May we all live with deep compassion for ourselves and all beings. in the service of our own awakening and the awakening of life itself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.